Our scripture today is Luke 24, 44 through 53. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Ellie. Well, this morning, uh, I am grateful to continue bringing the scripture to you. I typically do on Sunday mornings, um, and I really enjoy it, and it's, but yeah, it's often a humble experience. Um, I don't know if many of you have taught before. <clears throat> I've taught quite a few times and preach often. But it's uh, to submit yourself under a word when you're to be the one who is to speak is often a, uh, is an exercise. It's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> there was an article recently uh, called Eating Toward Immortality. It was in the Atlantic. It was an article that was talking about the diet culture. And here was actually the uh, subtitle, The Diet Culture is Just Another Way of Dealing with the Fear of Death. Listen to this. There are twin motives underlying human behavior, according to Becker, who is uh, an author who actually wrote about uh, terror management theory and how that applies even the way we approach our diets. The urge for heroism and the desire for atonement. At a fundamental level, people may feel the twinge of guilt uh, of guilty for having <clears throat> a body, taking up a, desire, uh, a space, and having appetites that devour the living things around us. They may crave expiation of this guilt, and culture provides not only the means to achieve plentiful material comfort, but also ways to sacrifice part of that comfort to achieve redemption. It is not enough for wellness gurus to simply amass the riches of health, beauty, and status. They must also deny themselves sugar, grains, and flesh. They, may, they must pay. Only those with status and resources to spare can afford the most impressive gestures of renunciation. Look at all they have. The steel and granite kitchen, the Le Creuset con, uh, collection, the Vitamix, the other worldly glow. They could afford to eat cake should the bread run out, but they quit sugar. They're only eating twigs and moss now. What more glamorous way to triumph over dirt and animality than and death? And you can too. That is, if you have the time and money to spend juicing all that moss and boiling the twigs until they're soft enough to eat. Now listen to this. This is the Atlantic talking about food. This is how the omnivore's paradox breeds diet culture. Overwhelmed by choice, by the dim threat of mortality that lurks beneath any wrong choice, people crave rules from outside themselves and successful heroes to guide them to safety. 
People willingly, happily hand over their freedom in exchange for the bondage of a diet that forbids their most cherished foods, that forces them to rely on the unfamiliar, unpalatable, or inaccessible, all for the promise of relief, choice, and the attendant responsibility. If you're free to choose, you can be blamed for anything that happens to you, weight gain, illness, aging. In short, your share in the human condition including the random whims of luck and your own inescapable mortality. Interesting. This article is, you could just pull it out of almost a a religious article, (laughs) like it's somewhere else. But what is she getting at? And what is she drawing even from Becker who talks about this terror management theory is the fact that we are a people that want somebody, a guru, a a, a diet culture to tell us how to live so we can have immortality, so we can see ourselves go on. It, it, it's expressing the fact that every one of us hangs on a word of sorts to give us life, to show us what we should be, how we should do it, and who we are. Th- that is exactly what it's talking about. It, listen to this, this line that she finishes with. This is why arguments about diets get so vicious so quickly. You're not merely disputing facts. You're pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. You're poking at their life raft. But if their diet proves to be the, in all caps, one true diet, yours must not be. If they're right, you're wrong. And this is why the diet culture seems so religious. Isn't that... The case. Okay, that's an easy shot there for us in food. But it's all around us. And it is a great, probably one of the greatest examples of the question of who do you listen to? Whose voice instructs you toward health? Not just physical health, but as this is explaining, immortality, everlasting life. We all want it. Even if you're here this morning, maybe you're kind of saying, I'm, I'm kind of coming back to church. I, I know I'm in a venue that's going to talk about salvation, uh, the eternal, those kind of things. You have to entertain the question that even if you're here this morning with those questions, or even if you say you've been a follower of Jesus, do the impacts of the words that we read on the screen actually profoundly change the way you live your life? Do they actually punch you hard enough to say, what am I doing with myself? Do they really direct me to an eternal life? Do they show me what's real and true? Like we're looking in, you can even see on your bulletin at the front, we're talking about anchor doctrines of the faith. Uh, we're celebrating even in October, which is the month of the Reformation 500 years ago when Martin Luther Uh, the father of the Protestant Reformation, nailed 95 theses to a a Wittenberg door in Germany and essentially said that we need to re-examine these things. And one of those, uh, what came out of that were these things called the solas in Latin, meaning only, that we need, and we've looked at last week, faith alone. And before that, we looked at to God's glory alone. This morning and for the next couple weeks, we're gonna look at Christ alone. Why? Why Christ alone? And why particularly this morning, his words, why was Jesus a prophet? And not just a prophet, but the prophet. If you look in the scriptures and you look at that language, it seems like a very religious term, right? 
But the Bible is going to draw it out in two distinct characteristics. If you want to know what a prophet is and how you really know you can listen to a prophet, two distinct characteristics. One is truth, and the second is fulfillment. Truth and fulfillment. If there are those two things, you better start listening to the one speaking because it really means that they are heralding something that is beyond themselves. So we're going to look at those two things this morning. You see those in this passage and even beyond. And first, that we see the truth. We need, we need a prophet to be one of truth, right? As this begins, this passage, it talks there. This is after Jesus is resurrected. Jesus has come out of the grave. They have walked on a road earlier in this chapter, Luke 24, and there are disciples and they are sad, they are just despondent because the guy they were following, this Jesus character, this one who heralded so many great things, and they even not only saw, as it says in Luke 24 earlier in the passage, and Jesus approaches them on this road and kind of in a, in a veiled sense, they don't know it's him. And Jesus says, why are y'all sad? And he, they say back to them, they say, we had this, there was a prophet named Jesus and he was mighty in word and deed. He could speak great things and he could do great things and now he's gone. But Jesus has to come to them and bring the truth of who he is. It says in verse 34, uh, 44 and 45, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Notice, it wasn't until after he rose from the dead that he had to show them that he fulfilled and he was the truth about what they've read about, what they had been in school about for ages, what they had learned about, the truth of who he is. This idea actually goes way back. Even in Deuteronomy, earlier in the, in the Old Testament, one of the first five books called the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy is when Moses was preaching to the people of God before they went into the promised land. And one of the things that he said that was fascinating in Deuteronomy 18 was he said, there's going to be a prophet after me that is going to be incredible. It says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen and in this, there are requirements of what this prophet was going to be like. That this prophet would speak, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, as God says, that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. In other words, the truth has to be in line of something. It has to be truth that's in line with things that had come before it. It's one thing to, for somebody to come along and just speak truth. But if it's just made up opinion, it's not in line with the purposes of what it means to be a prophet. And prophecy, different than what we may think, was not something that was just out there, some sort of prediction. It was actually proclamation of what was. What does it mean to be someone who heralds the truth of God? The truth that was not theirs necessarily, but it was someone else's. And this was a huge issue because there were countless prophets that came along, countless prophets who said, I have the truth. And they were despondent because they thought the one who actually said he had the truth was gone, is disappointed. And my question for you this morning is, is that? 
Is Jesus the truth that you think he is? Or is he somebody you shape to your own culture? Is the magic of Jesus and the wonder of the Bible something that you take and try and form fit to the truth around you rather than you fitting your truth to it? I was reading an article about Tom Petty who recently died. It was interesting because the guy who was writing it in the LA Times had just interviewed him literally days before his death. And reading about what Tom Petty said about himself and his band, The Heartbreakers, was really interesting in light of what we're talking about this morning. The thing about The Heartbreakers, Tom Petty said, is it's still holy to me. He said, with no air of loftiness or pretense, there's a holiness there. If that were to go away, I don't think I would be interested in it. And I don't think they would. We're a real rock and roll band, always have been. And to us, in the era we came up in, it was a religion in a way. It was more than commerce. It wasn't about that. It was about something much greater. It was about moving people and changing the world. And I really believed in rock and roll. I still do. And here's what's interesting about that article. Those lines were written, and as well as you read other parts of the article about the band, the Heartbreakers actually speaking about this, and in the way, what would it be like if, and it actually says, what would it be like if one of us actually was to die or to break off of the band? Right before this. And you can only ma- imagine the disappointment and the, this, them being despondent from this. And here's what's going on with this passage. It is a, it is a huge thing for Jesus to come and actually say, These are the words that I spoke to you. And then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures because in their minds, they had Jesus taking the truths that they wanted and heralding those. Instead of submitting themselves to him as the truth, they really wanted Jesus to take their truths and champion them. They were in a country, in a place where they were being oppressed. They were in a, 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 a... atmosphere where they thought this is going to be our Messiah. He is the one. That is what the word Christ means in verse 46, the anointed one. They said, we have the guy. This is him. And then when he dies, all of their dreams shatter because they think, as he has to say to them, they think it's not about his death. It's not about his resurrection. It's about their being up front. And I want to ask you, What position do you put Jesus in to make him submit to your truth and not the other way around? Jesus says all sorts of things in the Bible, right? They say he was a mighty prophet of word and deed. And it says even when he he did deeds that some people were like, I don't know if I want, I don't know if I can follow him. But here's the question is, are we willing to submit to what he says? There are countless things that we've looked at in the last two years, as we've, me and others have preached from this pulpit. And I am under the same submission. Is Jesus, are his words, are we willing to submit ourselves to them? Are we willing to say, you know what? He needs to speak into the places where I culturally, politically, religiously, philosophically, ideologically need to submit myself to him. Or do you still take that first foot forward with all the other ways? That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying we need a prophet to bring the truth to us. 
to shape our categories the way they need to be shaped. We oftentimes take Jesus in our categories and say that we need him to be the priority in our lives. But you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, you don't need to make me number one in all your list. He says, I want you to understand your list through me. You need to make sense of everything that you consider priorities through who I am. That's why he says about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. He's listing all of those things that they would look back into and try and shape their lives around. It's all pointing to him. Who speaks the truth to you? And do you listen? That's what a prophet did. A prophet, if you look anywhere in the scriptures, it was not a fun job. It was actually pretty terrible. Because most of the time when you went and you spoke, people wanted to kill you. Because you were speaking truth that wasn't necessarily just about their opinion. Oh, you're doing bad things. No, no, no. It was a weighing, it was a reflection from God's character to the people through the channel and voice of someone else. And Jesus is not just saying, I am a prophet. He's saying, I am the prophet. I am the one who takes your world and says, you really want to get how to live in it? Shape it according to my truth. Don't try and take me and fit me into your truth or your molds. Are you willing to be corrected? Are you willing to be corrected in what you could consider the truth? Things that you may have walked in for years. I I will tell you, this week I have been more humbled by things that I've seen in myself that I've thought I'm, I'm in the right about whether that's relationally, theologically, that I've had people and I've had to ask people, please tell me if I'm off. Please show me the reality of who I am. People who reflect not just some opinion of me, but reflect the reality of who I am before Jesus. Is If Jesus is this prophet, doesn't it mean that there are going to be difficult things that we don't agree with and yet we need to submit to? Are you willing to submit to those things? Are you willing to recognize that this prophet is not someone who comes just to talk about truth, just to be another person who, who says it, but says, I am the truth, the way, the life. All of this comes through me. That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying it all hangs on him and it is in him. Truth is not relative when it comes to Jesus. Sure, there are ways we can disagree about things, but what Jesus is saying is there is a, what is called in philosophy an unmoved mover. Even in the days of Aristotle, he came up with a phrase that he said, all things that have to be in flux, as many would say, philosophy is the way that we examine truth. Some pit, pit prophecy and philosophy together. But the main distinction is this, and Aristotle said it many, many, many centuries ago, that there is a need for an unmoved mover, a, a center point where everything must revolve around. Jesus in this moment is saying, I am the unmoved mover. 
I am the thing in which you make sense of who you are in all of those things in conjunction with the truth. Even if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know if I can believe his truth. He is still saying, you are examined by it. There is a light, it is out there, it is reality, it is set in stone, it is something to be examined, as we said last week, by faith to look into, not just to give your opinion on. Jesus doesn't need more opinions here. He's saying, you have to actually answer the question, what are you gonna do with my words? Most of the Bible we read and we're like, I can, I can kind of do that, I kind of skip over that, I kind of... He's saying all of it is channeled to the way that you and I need to see our reality and reflection of who we are. And it's not just in truth, it's also fulfillment. Fulfillment of this, this huge word that the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, typically when we think of a prophet, we think of some sort of predictive idea. We think of maybe in this room, you think of a, a prophet who just kind of speaks something out, maybe of an oracle, right? And in many days there were oracles, even up to our time, there's a lot of characters that draw that idea out. People that would have be some sort of a supernatural pipeline to God or the gods or something of that nature. But what Jesus is saying here is, is different. He is saying that I am not here to reveal and fulfill a part of history. I'm here to reveal, to reveal and to fulfill all of history. All of history is within me. That is a huge difference. Huge difference. Because he's saying it all hangs on me. All of it. So, and, and when he says the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, what is he talking about? He's talking about the threefold distinction of the Hebrew scriptures. That the Hebrew Old Testament canon, the scriptures, were divided up into three parts. And what we have and what you see in your Bible, they're all in that. But this was a different way thematically that the Old Testament was divided up through the Hebrew scriptures. So everything in your Old Testament is within those three things, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that in Deuteronomy 18, it says, there will be a prophet in verse 21. And you say, how may we know the word of the Lord has not spoken? When, the, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously and you need not be afraid of him. But if it does come to pass, as it does, Jesus is not just saying, hey, everything you've, heard about me or what I've done in the last 30 years is important, I've fulfilled it. He's saying everything going back to the beginning of history, space, and time is fulfilled in me. I, I love Jerry Seinfeld, I will say this. I don't get to talk about him much because uh, the show's been gone for a long time, but there's a new documentary out about Jerry Seinfeld uh, called <clears throat> Jerry Before Seinfeld. And uh, it's interesting, there's also an article written on him in the Wall Street Journal about how he kind of creates a joke. But in this Netflix uh, special, hour, hour and a half long, it shows his jokes on legal pad. And he, he says it's very vulnerable. I'll read about what he says in a second. But it shows a road, and it, it doesn't show the end of it, but laid, literally, they've taken every joke that he's written on every page and laid it on this road as like a, a, a map, 
going back and he's sitting Indian style with this accordion file talking to you and saying, every joke I've ever written is all contained. And the, these are the jokes I've ever written and they were all contained in this accordion file, this old brown accordion file with one of those stretchy things that you wrap around the, you know, the knob at the end, all contained in that. It was interesting what he said about it. He said, the amount of notes and the years on the road to his height, he said, I don't want to say uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm embarrassed, but they were a very private thing for me. I don't want people to know how much work I put into it. I just think it's more fun when it seems off the cuff. When a bit is your act and your act is your life, you know every letter of every word, every note of inflection and timing, and I had forgotten it all and had to relearn it. How interesting. It was interesting for him to review some of his jokes and to unpack and actually reveal how he tells a joke and what from that word. And here's what is going on in this passage that's really incredible. Jesus is telling us that the letters, everything that is written in those passages is pointing not just to an object of a joke, but to himself. He's getting them to see every page lined up on the road to him at that moment is leading to him. It is about him. There's no relearning. It is about who he is. This fulfillment is profound. In fact, people would say to him, even when he would say after this, he said, this is fulfilled. And thus he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning, in Jerusalem, beginning from Jerusalem. Do you realize that when he would say these things, it was blasphemous during his ministry. People would hear him say forgiveness and repentance and go, what are you, how dare you use that language as a prophet if you're not somebody who's more than that. And Jesus was constantly saying, you don't understand, I am. The only way he could be the prophet is if repentance and forgiveness hung on him. If he didn't just speak the truth of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance me is a word that we maybe think is a church word, but what it really means is a turning. In Greek, it means to turn. And oftentimes we think we need to repent of our bad things and start living in a good way. But Jesus is talking here about this in connection to forgiveness of sins of saying, no, 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 we don't just turn from our bad things and our good things. We turn from both of those things to Jesus. The fulfillment of all is in him. That is the fulfillment. That in the law of Moses, all laws, all the things you read in the Old Testament that cause you to go, how do I live up to that? Jesus has met those laws. All the laws and ceremonies and ways of things of sacrifice, Jesus has met those. All the ways that the prophets proclaimed him coming. He is there. Even in Deuteronomy, in this prophecy, in Deuteronomy 18, millennium before Jesus arrived on the scene. Jesus is saying, all of history and time, don't you think if he lived it in his life, he died it in his death, and in his resurrection here, he is saying, I am the prophet who fulfills it. Isn't he worth listening to? Listen to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1 Verse 8 through 13. Listen to this. This is powerful. 
says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when, the predicted, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. See what Peter is saying? He is saying that what we're looking at even in this table right now is the fact that, that the prophets before Jesus we're saying that there's someone greater coming. That this table is an illustration, not of just a prophet, but of someone who had to the, be the prophet. That his words of, this is my body, this is my blood, had to be more than language that he just fulfilled in a room with people gathering around a table. It had to be a reality that he fulfilled, that he stepped into and took on. The cross and the resurrection are realities in history and space and time because we have to have words that meet our reality. The reason we can submit ourselves to his truth is because he is the truth. He is the one that took this on. He is the one that meets our suffering in it. Don't you need a savior? Let's put it very bluntly. Don't you need a prophet who doesn't just talk a good game, but actually is the game, who actually lives in it, who takes on all that mess that you talk about on a daily basis, that his words don't just fall flat, but are a reality for your life. This table is set in that way. This table is a table that the Lord Jesus set himself for us to understand truth and fulfillment. It is true and it is fulfilled in him. We can't come forward to this table and I would encourage you this morning, please don't come take from this table if you think his truth is ridiculous and you think he is not the fulfillment. I'm not saying you don't struggle with his words just like I do. I'm not saying you think that you can still try and fulfill things in your own life without him. There's a difference between struggling and submitting. What I'm saying is coming to this table, knowing that you submit to his word. You're willing to say, you know what? I'm willing to look at myself and say, I need you, God, to examine me, to put me in my place so that I can know what it's like to actually live in freedom and not under the bondage that we even read, even when it comes to food, more or less, anything else in our life. So with that, let's actually stand together.